What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. I'm Melissa Lee. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange after its worst day since October. The Nasdaq is trying to claw its way back. Will March bring the tech trade back to life? We'll ask the co-head of Goldman Sachs' tech fund. Plus, stimulus, record savings, and rising income. It's all a bullish setup for retail heading into March. The street's number one retail analyst says get ready for the preparation buying phase of the recovery. And the GameStop short squeeze led to the near collapse of several hedge funds. Now the industry is playing defense using the very sites that led to their losses. We begin with today's markets on this last trading day of February. Don has got all the numbers as always. Scrape, scrape, scraping for numbers. A little hint at what they're doing with those hedge funds over there, Melissa. But uh, this is a market right now that is very, very much off the lows of the session so far. If you take a look at the Dow, yes, it's still negative, but 227 points to the downside. The S&P is actually up by one quarter of one percent. The Nasdaq Composite, a huge focus here. It's been the epicenter, arguably, of a lot of the market volatility and the pullback in the market given the rise in interest rates. So, again, up over 1% today. It's notable because at the highs of the session, we were up in the Nasdaq Composite 249 points or thereabouts. At the lows, we were down 95. That's a pretty big intraday swing for the Nasdaq. So, again, a huge focus there for sure. Speaking of those interest rates, We are seeing a slight pullback from the part of the yield curve, the interest rate complex that's been getting so much attention over the last few weeks here. That's the five-year Treasury note yield. Not the 10, not the 2. This part of the yield curve has spiked up dramatically. At one point, remember, we were about 83 basis points in terms of the overall yield there. We're backing off a bit. But again, this is the part, some technical factors, some position unwinding, some traders focusing very much on this part of the yield curve. And take a look at these stocks. Speaking of the Nasdaq today, Apple up 2%, Microsoft up 2%, Amazon up 1%, and Alphabet up almost 1%. I should throw in there as well, Facebook is up 3.5% right now, and Tesla is up roughly about 1% to 2% as well. Those are the six biggest stocks in the NASDAQ and the S&P, right? Take a look at those names. They're all up on the day. So, Melissa, if there is at least a little bit of dip-buying mentality still left in the marketplace, it is playing out in mega-cap technology. It remains to be seen whether that rising interest rate picture keeps that buy-the-dip mentality for those mega-cap names. I'll send things back over to you. All right. Thank you, Dom Chu. The averages are still positive for the month on this last trading day of February. Despite a roller coaster session, the Dow is negative but well off today's lows. The Nasdaq on track for its worst week in four months. So should investors expect more losses as fears of rising rates continue to swell? Joining us now, Mark Smith, Senior Vice President, Portfolio Manager at UBS Wealth Management, and Adrian Helfert, the Director of Multi-Asset and Emerging Markets Portfolios at Westwood Holdings Group. Gentlemen, great to have you with us. Um, Adrian, I'll I'll start with you. Is it going to be all about rates and where they are in terms of determining where the markets are headed? I don't think so. I think what you're seeing is fits and starts of the market as we're actually seeing economic momentum building. Economic momentum is building and you can't discount what we're seeing. The Atlanta Nowcast is up above 9%. Our expectations for real GDP growth is north of 6%. That's extraordinary for what we're seeing. And so what you're saying is a reflection of that. The 10-year interest rate is usually 
on average, if we look back to history, it's a proxy for the nominal GDP growth rate. From that perspective, we're going to see fits and starts. We're going to see growth come off as long-term cash flows get impacted by higher discount rates. So no, I think it's mm -hmm. about growth than, than rates. So ultimately, you think that the markets will see through it. We'll, we'll see that it's economic activity driving this rise in rates, and it won't be concerned about things like higher borrowing costs or equity risk premia. I believe so, yes. Okay. All right, next question to you. Um, so where, where do you see the markets going, in, and should we be concerned about higher valuation stocks even as the markets are going through fits and starts? Yeah. Well, first, I want to say, uh, Adrian, I just Googled you. I want to say thank you for your service. Uh, that's awesome. You're an Army medic, and that's great. Uh, listen, I think that the market has a lot of reasons to go higher. Uh, number one, there's possibly a $2 trillion deal going to come down the pike in the next 60 days. Two, you've got uh, the reopening. I was in the meatpacking last night with clients, and you couldn't even get a reservation at any of the restaurants downtown. So people are going out. It's It's happening. The vaccine should be in everybody's hands by the middle of the year. And so there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic because things are going to be OK. And so if that's going to happen, you've got to be bullish because there's tons of sectors out there that are undervalued. Healthcare is one of them. If we're going to be taking vaccines all the time, you've got to own these healthcare companies. You also have to own as a consumer discretionary because people are going to be flying again, going to hotels, traveling. All these sectors have a lot of value. And then you've got to use energy to get there. And you're seeing energy have a huge move in the last three weeks. And I, can, I think it's going to continue to do so because if you look at where we were past last March on almost all the energy stocks, they're still down 40 percent, 30 percent. So a lot of value in, in many sectors. Um, and there's a lot of reasons to be bullish in this environment, even though interest rates seem to be going up historically. They're still super low. And we're seeing all our clients buying real estate all over the country because of it. Mark, first of all, that's so pre-pandemic pre to say I was in the meatpacking last night. <laughs> Nobody says that these days. I haven't heard that in, in, in a year at least, at the very least. Um, but in terms of, of rates, I mean, we could, we've seen so many asset classes go to pre-pandemic highs, whether it be any commodity you name, whether it be the stock market and various uh, mega-cap tech stocks. We haven't seen rates yet go to pre-pandemic highs. And so the pre-pandemic high just before you know, the March to swoon was, what, 1.9%. It was definitely closer to two than where we are right now. Can we weather that? I mean, is there going to be some volatility ahead as we go through this adjustment period? Sure, I'll say, you know, one thing the central bank has certainly told us is that the front end is going to remain anchored. Yet after every single recession, the 10-year yield minus the two-year yield goes up north of 250 basis points. And we're around 130 basis points right now. So, yes, we could see more of that as we start to price in more of the growth. What will be impacted is those companies that have longer-term expectations on their cash flows. So you think about the, the large growers, the FANG stocks, some of the tech stocks, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing growthiness get not necessarily a revision in their revenue forecast. It's simply that their long-term cash flows are discounted at a higher rate. And thus, just like we're seeing now, when rates come down just a tad, of course, those cash flows become more attractive. So that's the volatility we see. Yeah. Mark, same question to you. Listen, I think that regardless of where rates are, um, that they're going to they're going to go up because we're at we're pretty much at historic lows. And so we've got it. We're telling our clients that that's what's going to happen. And so people are taking advantage of low rates and we're going to continue to go into equities because of these low rates. I mean, dividends for uh, the S&P 500, you can get three north of three percent. 
you know, why would you be um, in any kind of fixed, in, fixed income investments if you, unless you were afraid that we were going to go into a correction, 20 to 30 percent. And that's just not the case. And most investment banks and wealth management firms are saying the same thing. Five to six percent growth this year. And then look at the emerging markets. China's having a record, one of a record years. So there's a lot of place to invest um, regardless of where rates are. All right, gentlemen, good to see you both. Thank you so much, Mark Smith and Adrian Halford. And if you're looking for more ways to play this rising rate environment, CNBC Pro has checked the charts and named three ETFs to buy right now. So you can head on over to CNBC.com slash pro for those. Well, the sharp rise in bond yields this week led to a wild ride for the Nasdaq and many of the big cap tech names. While Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook and Alphabet are bouncing back today, many are closing the week in the red. The Nasdaq's down more than 3 percent. Amazon down nearly 5 percent. Apple down more than 4 percent. Microsoft and Alphabet down from well, down as well. Brooke Dane is co-portfolio manager of the Technology Opportunities Fund at Goldman Sachs, which is up 45 percent in 2020. He sees the tech pullback as a buying opportunity. Brooke, welcome. Um, I, I suppose you don't think that rising rates are a problem, although we have seen rates steadily rise since the beginning of this year. And we've seen all of those big cap tech stocks that I named in the intro. While they're off just, you know, single digit percentages this week, they are down double digit percentages from their highs this year. So how do you interpret just the price action? The price action is telling us that it is a problem for technology to have rates go higher. Yeah, thanks, Melissa, and great to be on the show. So, you know, our central belief is, is that, you know, we're at the front end of this massive wave of tech innovation um, and that we think that there's incredible opportunities in the sector. And while rates have moved up um, and, you know, that does impact long term values of the stocks, what we're seeing is that these stocks have actually discounted much more um, of uh, a, you know, a rising rate than we've seen and we're likely to see. You know, what we've been talking to our clients about is a couple key things. So first of all, we think that there's a huge opportunity in that next level down of companies below the mega cap names, both in the U.S. and more importantly, globally in the tech sector, where you can get real opportunities to own the next generation uh, platform companies that are rising. Secondly, we really think that um, you want to be balanced. You want to have a portfolio that's built with some of the, the big, disruptive, fast-growing you know, companies that are changing the world, but you also want to have some of the more compounding companies in there that are steady growers and that are you know, uh, compounding at high rates of return. So you know, we're always talking balance. We're always talking about moving incrementally into these things. But as we sit here right here right now with the pullback we've had over the last week, we think there's real opportunities to put capital to work. Uh, in some of these high growth names specifically and, and some other areas as well. So the high growth names that are sort of the next level down, not the biggest of the big cap technology stocks, Brooke, how should we think about them in terms of valuation? Because what, what seems to be emerging in the tech space, at least amidst this rising rate environment, is a bifurcation in terms of the highest valuation stocks, which are hit much harder versus the lower valuation, quote unquote, value technology stocks, which have weathered it a lot better. And, and I'm thinking in terms of high valuation the IGV software ETF, for instance, got hit much harder this week than the overall NASDAQ. Yeah. So, you know, software is one of the real innovation engines out there in the global economy. And, and we are seeing a whole new generation of companies come up that we think can be very large companies over time. You know, we do think this is a huge role for active stock pickers to come in and differentiate between, you know, what are the, the likely champions over the coming decade versus what are going to be on the wrong side of that disruption. But with that said, you know, we do, you know, you've seen kind of average price to sales multiples come in by three or four turns across the growth software universe. And while price to sales is only kind of one metric of valuation, it's a, it's a decent shorthand thing for looking at, you know, what's the market pricing these things at. We think there's a lot of these companies that can grow, you know, sustainably in the high 20s for many years to come. 
And that at these kind of price levels, it's starting to get in the zone where we're interested in adding to positions. So, you know, we um, we basically have a shopping list of some of these things that we think are the secular winners that we've been looking for opportunities to add to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the pullbacks like this create opportunities for that. We do see a sell off, though, in response to higher rates, Brooke. Is that is that your cue that overall you should be looking for opportunities to trim back on positions in in perhaps some more highly valued areas or maybe even the big cap uh, tech stocks, because you said you're moving yeah. away from them. Yeah. So, um, you know, what I would say is, is that we're guided by the fundamentals of the companies. We spend a lot of time doing our own research and figuring out how we think these businesses are likely to evolve over the coming years. And so when we see a pullback like we've seen this week, but the fundamentals of the companies remain strong and remain positive and are inflecting in the right directions, we tend to use that as opportunities to add to positions, not to, to pair them back, because we do think ultimately the fundamentals of the companies win and will decide what's happening in the marketplace. So, you know, just to keep talking about software for a minute, you've mm-hmm. seen, you know, much better performance on the fundamentals, whether that be lower churn rates, whether that be uh, higher net dollar retention rates and, and pipelines building strongly. We see real opportunity for these companies uh, over the coming year, um, a lot of them to, to buy and add to positions. So. All right. Brooke, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for your thoughts. Great to see you. Thank you very much for the time. Brooke Dane of Goldman Sachs. We've got a news alert in the auto industry. Phil has got the details. Phil. Melissa, take a look at some of the auto stocks, and there may be a little bit of movement after the release of this letter. This is a letter from the governors of eight states, states that have auto production facilities located in them. It is a letter to the Biden administration calling on the Biden administration to press semiconductor companies to allocate a greater portion of their chip production for automotive-grade wafers. That would help the auto industry and the auto producers because right now they have to you know, cut some of the shifts in different plants because they don't have enough of these chips that are needed to continue to boost production. So this is another case where officials in these states, and we've already seen this from senators in these states, are pressing the Biden administration to do more. And just remember earlier this week, Melissa, we had President Biden saying that he was going to push for $37 billion to expand chip production and to push for greater chip production here in the United States. So this continues to be a story that, at least near term, over the next several weeks and months, this will be a primary story when it comes to the automakers here in the U.S. All right. I'm going to wait for a group of state governors to urge uh, the chip making industry to put aside chips for for things like game consoles and and phones in response. (laughs) Phil, thank you for the update. You bet. Phil LeBeau. Coming up, the retail industry is heading into the second half with a number of tailwinds that could boost the sector. We'll speak with J.P. Morgan's Matt Boss about the names to buy for what he calls the preparation phase of the recovery. And we break down the three things investors need to know about bonds before running for the hills. The exchange is back right after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. The House is expected to, to approve President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus package today, which includes $1,400 in direct payments for most Americans. This could spark a significant surge in spending. The smaller $600 stimulus checks did just that. U.S. household income jumping 10 percent in January, the second largest increase on record. And that spurred a 2.4 percent growth in spending. 1,400 checks coupled with a robust vaccine rollout could unleash even more consumer spending. After all, people are going to need clothes that aren't sweatpants or yoga pants. Joining us now is J.P. Morgan's Matt Boss, uh, the street's number one retail analyst. Matt, great to have you with us. Thanks for um, having me, Melissa. I'll do anything to keep yoga pants. But um, in terms of thinking about the recovery, Matt, you actually break it out into three waves, which make a lot of sense. Basically, how life will be going forward um, and what you'll need for that new life. So can you sort of go through this for us? Yeah, Melissa, I I think the key is that the consumer was in a very good place before the pandemic. We were bullish heading in, but there were winners and losers across retail. I think coming out on the other side, to your point on this three-wave recovery, we're seeing the beginning of preparation buying. You have return to work, return to occasion, which will follow. And then you have the, the travel side, leisure and global tourism, which I think is probably a back half of this year and into 2022 event. So this isn't a three or a four month opportunity. I see this as, as the next basically 18 months of recovery. We're seeing it across multiple areas. And going back to that consumer, strong consumer before, but now we have debt service ratios at 40-year lows. We have cash reserves, and you have, a, you have a consumer that I think benefits from a wealth effect on the other side, not to mention the potential stimulus that you just, that you just mentioned. Yeah, and the stimulus will, will slowly work its way through the system, surely, so it might not be for months. Um, what interested me about the personal income uh, numbers also, Matt, was a savings rate. The savings rate was at more than 20%. How should we think about, as we emerge from this pandemic, Matt, um, not just income, uh, and, and a return to work, but also the savings that consumers have. Do you think that part of that will actually be deployed into some of the companies, some of the stocks that, that you cover? I do. I think you're going to see a tremendous amount of pent up demand. I, I think it could be explosive in nature. Um, so if you think about the dynamics of the consumer before versus after, to your point, you have the savings rate and now you are layering on checks, which on our math could be up to 1,200 basis points of same-store sales benefit. That's versus 500 basis points in January and uh, relative to 700 basis points if you look back to stimulus round one. So to me, the consumer picture underlying had strength before. You're now coming out with a consumer that, if you look to some of the companies that have reported recently, they're talking about lower delinquency rates. The credit metrics look good across the board. And so it's really now a factor of the pent-up demand. Our strategists here are calling for an effective end to the pandemic in 30 to 60 days, which to me means that this may be a second quarter event, which initially even we were thinking was more of a third quarter and fourth quarter event. So I think this pent-up demand, barring that there's no hiccups here from a vaccine or from a COVID dynamic, could be a lot sooner and a lot more around the corner, which would mean there's opportunity across my space, which is basically the epicenter. We're calling for a barbell approach, I would say on the value side, I want to own names like LB, American Eagle, The Gap, Tapestry. But then I also want to own some of the other side, which is quality growth that comes out stronger. That to me would be Nike, Lululemon, Dollar General. So more in that discounter world, as well as athletic and athleisure, which did well during the pandemic, but comes out stronger. 
Why should a Nike and Lululemon come out stronger post-pandemic? I mean, haven't people bought their share of comfy clothes? Yeah, I'd even expand it. Look, I think one of the bigger themes coming out of this is going to be casualization. So, yes, they were more resilient on a relative basis during the pandemic. But I think they take market share. They take shelf space coming out. So as I think about Levi's in denim or Nike and Lulu and athletic, I think the world coming out is more flexible. I think there's a return to work, but there's a more casual side to this. I think that as people move and, and venture out, you'll have that combination which, fit, which fits directly into that barbell approach where we want to own handbags and accessories, which would be tapestry. We want to own some of the more formal wear. We want to also be there because I think that total addressable market of athletic, but more so of casualization coming out, given a more consum- given a more mobile consumer, mm-hmm. I think is larger. So again, that fits into that barbell approach that we're taking where we want to own quality growth, but I think there's very much so value opportunities on the other side of that, of that coin. Casualization, interesting. I won't ask you if you're wearing yoga pants right now, Matthew. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. JP Morgan. Coming up, one sector that has been hoping for higher rates for years is the financials ahead of CEO Frost Bank, whose stock has rallied 20% this year on what the move means for the industry. And the FDA is discussing Johnson & Johnson's COVID vaccine today, setting the stage for a final decision on emergency use authorization within days. We've got the latest on how early the drug could be rolled out. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to the exchange markets right now. Our mix, the Dow is off by just about six-tenths of a percent. But, of course, the story of the day is the recovery that we've seen from the tech route in yesterday's session. Take a look at the Nasdaq, up by 1.6 percent. So no surprise in the S&P 500, we're seeing tech as the best-performing sector of the day, up 1.8 percent. And I also wanted to highlight energy, which is down 1.7 percent, but still on track for a 5 percent weekly gain. Now, here are some of the individual movers this hour. Shares of rocket companies sharply higher following a beat on the top and the bottom lines. Record mortgage volume, one of the tailwinds in 2020. Airbnb also surging despite a loss in its first quarter as a publicly traded company. Revenue did beat expectations, helped by bookings of long-term stays. That stock up 16.5%. And Weight Watchers parent, WW International, higher by 11%. Earnings missed, but revenue beat, thanks in part to strong growth in digital subscriptions. Now, let's get to Rahel Solomon for CNBC News. News update for how. I'm Melissa. Hello, everyone. And here's what's happening at this hour. The White House says that U.S. airstrikes in Syria are aimed at sending a message that President Biden will act to protect Americans. Press Secretary Jennifer Psaki also saying that the U.S. remains open to discussions with Iran, but that no steps will be taken to ease sanctions. In Nigeria, gunmen have abducted 317 girls from this boarding school. Police and military forces have now begun joint operations to rescue the girls, but this is the latest in a series of mass kidnappings in the West African nation. 
And staying overseas, Japan will allow Olympic athletes to enter the country as soon as next month. That's according to the Nikkei newspaper. The travel ban for athletes is expected to end shortly after the country's emergency declaration is lifted. And former Olympic gymnast Allie Raisman is now calling for an independent investigation of former coach John Geddert. Geddert killed himself hours after being charged with sexual assault and human trafficking. And for more on the fallout from this case, tune into the news with Shepard Smith tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Melissa, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. Well, it is Friday, and that means it is time to look ahead to what is in store for your money next week. Here's your Friday Fast Forward. March kicks off, and it's coming in like a lion. Consumer names, including Target, Kohl's, Costco, and Gap, are all reporting earnings, giving investors a better look at whether or not retail can continue its run. We also get jobs data for the month of February. Yet another tech-themed insurance startup going public. Oscar Health, shooting for a nearly $7 billion valuation, starts trading on Wednesday. OPEC and non-OPEC countries holding a meeting as oil prices keep climbing. MGM takes a big step in the reopening of Las Vegas, resuming 24-7 operations at select hotels. And the CDC's Advisory Committee on Vaccines holds a two-day meeting starting Sunday to set recommendations for Johnson & Johnson's COVID vaccine, which could roll out as early as Monday. That's your Friday Fast Forward. And before the CDC meets on Johnson Johnson's COVID vaccine, the FDA will vote on emergency use authorization. That meeting is happening right now. Let's bring in Meg Terrell for the latest. Hi, Meg. Hey, Melissa. This meeting of FDA's outside panel of experts on vaccines has been going on since 9 o'clock this morning. And we have heard from the FDA. We have heard from Johnson & Johnson. Right now is a portion when the public gets its chance to weigh in on the data behind this vaccine. Most of the data we heard about this morning uh, from the panel and the questions, you know, from the panelists, things that we had already seen in the FDA's briefing documents on Wednesday about the efficacy of this vaccine, that it looks protective against severe disease with just one dose. We did learn one new thing from Johnson & Johnson um, about two cases of severe allergic reactions they said were reported just on Wednesday um, from an open trial in South Africa where 40,000 healthcare workers have been vaccinated. Uh, One of those was anaphylaxis. Um, Now they're going to continue monitoring that. These are still pretty rare events out of the number of people who've received this vaccine, but that was notable and new this morning. Uh, Now what comes from here? We'll see that vote maybe around 4.30 5 o'clock tonight. If that is positive, we expect to hear from the FDA very quickly. If it follows a similar pattern to the previous two vaccines, could see the FDA giving the emergency use authorization as early as tomorrow. Then the CDC's outside uh, committee of advisors meets Sunday and Monday to discuss any recommendations for this vaccine. Upon all of those green lights, we could see three to four million doses of the J&J vaccine going out in the U.S. next week. And Mel, it's one shot and done. So that means enough for three to four million people. That's amazing. You know, Meg, I wanted to ask you, because this question has been coming up more and more, and and Dr. Fauci was actually asked this very question, that is when you've received the vaccine, uh, a broadcaster posed to Dr. Fauci, when do you plan on seeing your children? And he made it sound like he would not see his own children until they were also vaccinated. When would the CDC, when does the CDC plan on updating its guidance when it comes to people who have been vaccinated, what they can and cannot do, what they should or should not do? 
There's been a lot of pressure on the public health community uh, and the, the leaders in this country on that point, because there's an argument, you know, if you say, well, don't change anything after you get vaccinated, there's sort of like, well, what, what's the incentive to get vaccinated? Of course, the incentive is it protects you. Um, the question is, does getting a vaccine prevent transmission? There were some early signals in the J&J data that it could do that, but they are still pretty early. We do expect data on that from the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines over the coming weeks uh, to months. And so we should know better if getting a vaccine will keep you from spreading uh, the virus to others. And I think that's what they're waiting for to really update recommendations. They do say if you're with somebody who's been vaccinated and you've been vaccinated, you can be a little more comfortable. But until then, they're being pretty cautious. All right. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell. And our parent company, Comcast NBC Universal, recently launched, launched Plan Your Vaccine, a company-wide initiative to help educate people on how and where they can get the COVID-19 vaccine. So head on over to planyourvaccine.com for more. Well, coming up, why it's happening, the key levels to watch, and will the Fed respond? We are looking at the three things investors need to know about the recent bond moves. And it's time for what we call show and tell. We show the chart, then we tell the story. Today's chart is Etsy. The stock is up double digits following a big beat on the top and bottom line and upbeat guidance. Here's Etsy's CEO on the year that was and what he sees in store for 2021. If I look at uh, 2020, e-commerce grew at an, a, a crazy rate. E-commerce grew at over 40% year over year. And yet Etsy grew two and a half times the rate of e-commerce. So uh, I don't know what e-commerce is going to do in 2021, but, but I hope and believe that Etsy will be able to continue to outpace e-commerce overall. Sudden and sharp rise in bond yields, leaving stock investors asking why this is all suddenly taking place, how far it has to go, and whether the Fed can or should do anything about it. Here with some answers, senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Steve. Melissa, good afternoon. For stock investors, bond yields and inflation have long been the boogeyman in the closet. And for a while, they've been pretty locked up. But now investors face the prospect of a surge in economic growth, lots of stimulus in place, and more to come, raising worries of inflation and rising bond yields, potentially making stocks less attractive. But are we there yet? City Private Bank doesn't think so. They say current fixed income levels represent, and I quote here, terrible value. They say heading into 2021, we expect a double-digit gains in EPS, single-digit gains in equity returns, and minus 1% for fixed income returns. An investor in the SP 500 gets a dividend return equal to 1.47% of their investment, about equal to the risk-free return of the 10-year, which is around 1.45%. And dividends are below their long-run average, in part due to the pandemic. They could recover with the economy. It's the same reason bond yields are rising. The 10-year traded near 180 and stocks were also on the way up just as the pandemic hit. Of course, stocks are higher now, so there's a higher threshold. But bond traders I speak with believe 2% is the top of the current range for the 10-year, a rate that is not normally troubling for stocks amid good economic growth. So the upshot is the Fed looks unlikely to take any additional action on bond yields, at least not at these levels. And Melissa, I was interested in your conversation with that retail analyst. You don't think all this money is coming out into the economy without companies making a lot of money in response to it. That, that's true. But Steve, I'm wondering, you know, the Fed has been sort of, you know, signaling it's, it's fine. This is fine. This is a blip. We are expecting this to happen. But it does seem like central bankers, 
in other parts of the world are a little bit more concerned or are at least saying that they're monitoring the situation. Christine Lagarde of the ECB said, she, you know, they are watching rising rates. I believe the Bank of Australia launched a surprise bond buying program in response to the rise in rates it's seen. It seems like people are taking notice, but not the Fed. Why, why do you think there's this disconnect? Um, I think the Fed believes it's done an awful lot and doing an awful lot uh, and, in fact, has done more than others have done. Uh, plus, you have you know, the $120 billion of asset purchase. That's a lot of asset purchase. That's a lot of QE, Melissa. Plus, they're at zero, and they're sort of not exactly pledging, but forecasting they're going to be at zero for a long time. I think Powell is sort of a prudent guy. He wants to hold back his weapons, until he, his tools, until he really needs them. And jawboning is one of those tools, as you know. So he's going to hold back. If he feels like it gets up to 2.5% of the 10-year, I think that's when you might get a little rhetoric from the Fed. And, of course, they have actual things they can do. They can come in and do operations, buying on the long end to keep yields down. But I don't think Powell, with a forecast, have you seen the numbers we started the week with? Our rapid update at 6.5% for the first quarter, and then we're going to go to 8, 9, 10, 11% in the second and third. You look at those numbers and say, hey, I'm just going to sit back and let this play out over time. All right. Steve, thank you. Steve Leisman. Pleasure. Well, there has been a lot of focus on the moves in government at Treasuries, but the muni bond market is seeing some of its moves of its own. Flows into muni bond funds plummeted this past week to less than $38 million. That's down from nearly $2 billion of inflows in just the prior week. At the same time, the largest muni ETF fell to its lowest level since November, only two weeks after hitting an 11-month high. For more on these moves in the bond market, we're joined by Michael Schumacher, head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo Securities, and Jason Ware, the co-founder and managing director at 280 Cap Markets. Um, Guys, good to have you with us. It's interesting because muni bond investors were holding firm for so long, because even when you take into consideration the tax-exempt status, it made much more sense to be in treasuries over muni bonds, and yet muni bonds investors stuck to their guns. What what was the tipping point, Michael, in your view? What what happened in the past? Is just, uh, you know, that that treasury rates went that much higher? Yeah, Melissa, I'd say it's a function of treasury yields going up a fair bit. And certainly the move over the last, call it month, as Steve just talked about, has been impressive. That's factor number one. And also maybe, just maybe, there's a little concern about tax rates being revised over the next, call it, three to four months. So it's probably a combination of those two events. When you say tax rates being revised, what sorts of revisions are you thinking of? A lot of people are speculating that the administration may push for changes potentially in the corporate tax rate, maybe in capital gains. We haven't heard a lot of buzz yet about individual tax rate shifting at the federal level, maybe at the state level. But still, there's tax talk out there, and that has to make people in the market think about just how to take care of their income and protect gains. Jason, what's your what's your take on, on what's gone in, especially when it comes to the dramatic swing that we saw from inflows to outflows? Um, I think some of what uh, you're talking about with taxes definitely play a key. When you're talking about capital gains taxes and, you know, they're talking higher corporate taxes, um, those sorts of taxes don't actually affect municipal bond buying necessarily. And the taxes that haven't been talked about, which are income taxes, the things that would actually affect the appeal of muni bonds have been talked about a little bit less. And I think also in the past week, you've seen a little bit uptick in supply in the muni market. And I think, you know, you're going into a little bit busier season of supply for, for munis on the primary side. And that's also going to, you know, continue to help push yields up a little bit. 
So do you think, Michael, the decline, uh, the decline continues in muni bonds? I really would look to the Treasury market there, Melissa. Mm -hmm. In our view, Wells Fargo's yields have come up awfully quickly. They're down a little bit today. We think they stabilize for perhaps the next month, let's call it, until stimulus is likely to kick in or additional stimulus be enacted. So I think that's, that's potentially the case. But beyond that, we think yields rise. So temporary pause followed by an increase in yields. That's our take on it. Yeah. How about you, Jason? What would you recommend to investors at this point? I would recommend uh, a laddered approach to your portfolio. Um, when it comes to munis, you don't ever want to really overthink it. If you're laddering and each year you have principal coming due, as interest rates rise, put that money to work, capture that, uh, that accreted interest. And, uh, you know, we don't really recommend calling the market. The laddered approach, uh, slow and steady, is the muni approach. All right. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Michael Schumacher, Jason Ware. Thank you. Up next, the CEO of Frost Bank, headquartered in San Antonio, Texas, will join us to discuss everything from the winter storm impact to Bitcoin to rising rates. And speaking of rising rates, take a look at how the banks have fared in February. J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, PNC, all climbing higher, with Wells leading the way up more than 22 percent. And it's Black History Month. We are honoring some of our CNBC contributors. Here's Dewardrick McNeil on what it will take to close the racial wealth gap. 17,150, the median net worth for black households. $171,000, that's the median net worth for white households. This is not a wealth gap, this is a wealth gulf. And it's gonna take a number of things to close that gulf. Access to capital, greater opportunity for employment, other opportunities to participate in the equity economy. All these things are needed to close this gap. Sudden and sharp rise in bond yields, leaving stock investors asking why this is all suddenly taking place, how far it has to go, and whether the Fed can or should do anything about it. Here with some answers, senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Steve. Melissa, good afternoon. For stock investors, bond yields and inflation have long been the boogeyman in the closet. And for a while, they've been pretty locked up. But now investors face the prospect of a surge in economic growth, lots of stimulus in place, and more to come, raising worries of inflation and rising bond yields, potentially making stocks less attractive. But are we there yet? City Private Bank doesn't think so. They say current fixed income levels represent, and I quote here, terrible value. They say heading into 2021, we expected double-digit gains in EPS, single-digit gains in equity returns, and minus 1% for fixed income returns. An investor in the SP 500 gets a dividend return equal to 1.47% of their investment, about equal to the risk-free return of the 10-year, which is around 1.45%. And dividends are below their long-run average, in part due to the pandemic. They could recover with the economy. It's the same reason bond yields are rising. The 10-year traded near 180 and stocks were also on the way up just as the pandemic hit. Of course, stocks are higher now, so there's a higher threshold. But bond traders I speak with believe 2% is the top of the current range for the 10-year, a rate that is not normally troubling for stocks amid good economic growth. So the upshot is the Fed looks unlikely to take any additional action on bond yields, at least not at these levels. And Melissa, I was interested in your conversation with that retail analyst. You don't think all this money is coming out into the economy without companies making a lot of money in response to it. That That's true. But Steve, I'm wondering, you know, the Fed has been sort of 
you know, signaling it's, it's fine, this is fine, this is a blip, we are expecting this to happen. But it does seem like central bankers in other parts of the world are a little bit more concerned or, or at least saying that they're monitoring the situation. Christine Lagarde of the ECB said, she, you know, they are watching rising rates. I believe the Bank of Australia launched a surprise bond buying program in response to the rise in rates it's seen. It seems like people are taking notice, but not the Fed. Why, why do you think there's this disconnect? Um, I think the Fed believes it's done an awful lot and doing an awful lot uh, and, in fact, has done more than others have done. Uh, plus, you have you know, the $120 billion of asset purchase. That's a lot of asset purchase. That's a lot of QE, Melissa. Plus, they're at zero and they're sort of not exactly pledging, but forecasting they're going to be at zero for a long time. I think Powell is sort of a prudent guy. He wants to hold back his weapons, until he, his tools, until he really needs them. And jawboning is one of those tools, as you know. So he's going to hold back. If he feels like it gets up to 2.5% of the 10-year, I think that's when you might get a little rhetoric from the Fed. And, of course, they have actual things they can do. They can come in and do operations, buying on the long end to keep yields down. But I don't think Powell, with a forecast, have you seen the numbers we started the week with? Our rapid update at 6.5% mm-hmm. for the first quarter, and then we're going to go to 8, 9, 10, 11% in the second and third. You look at those numbers and say, hey, I'm just going to sit back and let this play out over time. All right. Steve, thank you. Steve Leesman. Pleasure. Well, there has been a lot of focus on the moves in government at Treasuries, but the muni bond market is seeing some of its moves of its own. Flows into muni bond funds plummeted this past week to less than $38 million. That's down from nearly $2 billion of inflows in just the prior week. At the same time, the largest muni ETF fell to its lowest level since November, only two weeks after hitting an 11-month high. For more on these moves in the bond market, we're joined by Michael Schumacher, head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo Securities, and Jason Ware, the co-founder and managing director at 280 Cap Markets. Um, Guys, good to have you with us. It's interesting because muni bond investors were holding firm for so long, because even when you take into consideration the tax-exempt status, it made much more sense to be in treasuries over muni bonds, and yet muni bonds investors stuck to their guns. What what was the tipping point, Michael, in your view? What what happened in the past? Is just, uh, you know, that, that, that the treasury rates went that much higher? Yeah, Melissa, I'd say it's a function of treasury yields going up a fair bit. And certainly the move over the last, call it month, as Steve just talked about, has been impressive. That's factor number one. And also maybe, just maybe, there's a little concern about tax rates being revised over the next, call it, three to four months. So it's probably a combination of those two events. When you say tax rates being revised, what sorts of revisions are you thinking of? A lot of people are speculating that the administration may push for changes potentially in the corporate tax rate, maybe in capital gains. We haven't heard a lot of buzz yet about individual tax rate shifting at the federal level, maybe at the state level. But still, there's tax talk out there, and that has to make people in the market think about just how to take care of their income and protect gains. Jason, what's your your take on, on what's gone in, especially when it comes to the dramatic swing that we saw from inflows to outflows? Um, I think some of what uh, you're talking about with taxes definitely mm-hmm. play a key. When you're talking about capital gains taxes and, you know, they're talking higher corporate taxes, um, those sorts of taxes don't actually affect municipal bond buying necessarily. And the taxes that haven't been talked about, which are income taxes, the things that would actually affect the appeal of muni bonds have been talked about a little bit less and I think also in the past week, you've seen a little bit uptick in supply in the muni market. 
And I think, you know, you're going into a little bit busier season of supply for, for munis on the primary side. And that's also going to, you know, continue to help push yields up a little bit. So do you think, Michael, the decline, uh, the decline continues in muni bonds? And really, we looked at the Treasury market there, Melissa. Mm-hmm. In our view, Wells Fargo's yields have come up awfully quickly. They're down a little bit today. We think they stabilize for perhaps the next month, let's call it, until stimulus is likely to kick in or additional stimulus be enacted. So I think that's, that's potentially the case. But beyond that, we think yields rise. So temporary pause followed by an increase in yields. That's our take on it. Yeah. How about you, Jason? What would you recommend to investors at this point? I would recommend uh, a laddered approach to your portfolio. Um, when it comes to munis, you don't ever want to really overthink it if you're laddering. And each year you have principal coming due as interest rates rise, put that money to work, capture that, uh, that accreted interest. And, uh, you know, we don't really recommend calling the market. The laddered approach, uh, slow and steady, is the muni approach. All right. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Michael Schumacher, Jason Ware. Thank you. Up next, the CEO of Frost Bank, headquartered in San Antonio, Texas, will join us to discuss everything from the winter storm impact to Bitcoin to rising rates. And speaking of rising rates, take a look at how the banks have fared in February. J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, PNC, all climbing higher, with Wells leading the way up more than 22%. And it's Black History Month. We are honoring some of our CNBC contributors. Here's to Wardrick McNeil on what it will take to close the racial wealth gap. 17,150, the median net worth for black households. $171,000, that's the median net worth for white households. This is not a wealth gap, this is a wealth gulf. And it's gonna take a number of things to close that gulf. Access to capital, greater opportunity for employment, other opportunities to participate in the equity economy. All these things are needed to close this gap.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Rising bond yields and concerns about higher interest rates continue to royal markets, but one industry that wouldn't mind seeing a bump in rates is banking, including Frost Bank, based in San Antonio, Texas. Frost Bank is up 20 percent this year, nearly double the financial ETF XLF. Joining us now for more with rates, PPP loans, the acceptance of Bitcoin is Phil Green, chairman and CEO of Frost Bank. Phil, great to have you with us. Great to be here, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Can you talk us through um, how your bank sees or how sensitive your bank is to every, I don't know, increase, whatever increment you want to use uh, in steepness in the yield curve, just to try and understand how how levered your bank is to rising rates? Yeah, I think uh, we don't see anything happening on the short end. But when you look at the long end, I think one good way to look at it is that we are um, we've got about. $10 $10 billion of our balance sheet today, of about a $42 billion balance sheet, in uh, 10 basis points at the Fed today. So we're looking for opportunities to invest in the bond market once we believe that there's some certainty and conviction baked into the numbers. And, uh, and I think we're you know, starting to see that if we, as we've seen these increases in rates going forward. Yeah. What's your sense of as to where rates are actually headed? I mean, I was noting in an earlier segment that a lot of asset classes have gone back to pre-pandemic highs. Rates um, we have not seen go back to pre-pandemic highs, levels that they were at in just, say, February of last year, Phil. So do you anticipate, let's say, the 10-year yield re- recouping that level, which is about 1.9 percent or so? I, I do. You know, I, I think we're uh, seeing some inflationary possibilities um, being represented in the numbers today. And I think that's rational when you look at what's happened with regard to fiscal support, monetary support, all of it appropriate. We're looking at additional fiscal support today. You know, I think that's that's uh, common sense to me. Uh, Also, I think you need to look at Main Street. We were meeting with customers yesterday. Um, You know, I I remember a couple of those uh, comments one was that they had seen steel prices increase to them. This is a company that makes compressors. They'd seen steel prices increase three times in the last two months, and they'd passed those along to consumers. There was another large home builder who mentioned that they're increasing prices on their homes on a weekly basis. And you're also seeing some problems with supply chain um, that continue to be there. So um, it's something that needs to be watched. And, and as we look at Main Street, there's, there's some... Uh, some inflation there. Yeah, yeah, and and you have been meeting with a lot of the small businesses as you're focusing on processing the PPP loans for that segment of the economy. I'm curious too, though, the other side of, of rising commodity prices is rising oil prices. Feeling that you're in Texas, so I'm wondering how positively that has impacted you as energy seems to have come back to life this year. It's been so much better than it was last year. You know, oil at uh, sixty-two dollars really has created some activity. I think the servicing side was still under a lot of pressure when it was in the, even when it was in the 50s. We've seen that, uh, I think we'll see that repair itself some. Uh, this compressor company, for example, was doing a lot of work uh, for the uh, fracking business in the Permian Basin. So uh, I think it's been a big help and will continue to be so. Have you been extending loans more or how do you see um, this sort of comeback in energy affecting your portfolio? I think energy is just a broad benefit overall to the economy in Texas. It's it's um, not as big an employment base as you think. It's under five percent, but it's it is something that undergirds uh, a lot of what we do here. So uh, we're not seeing a lot of borrowing uh, happen right now. That's true, really, of of the economy in general. We, we're still seeing advance rates on 
loan commitments, commitment lines, about 10% below where they were pre-pandemic. Hmm. We're uh, optimistic that as the vaccine takes place, we see more activity, we'll see those uh, commitment lines go to a more uh, historical percentage of, of the line drawn. Yeah, and how has the PPP rollout been for you uh, in terms of processing those loans for the smaller businesses? Um, are you getting the sense that you're able to process them, that the businesses are, are stepping up and saying, I do need help? And what's your sense of how dire the straits are that these businesses are in at this point? You know, Melissa, the, the first day uh, we had a lot of activity. First week we had 6,000 applications. 90% of those were from people that had gotten a PPP loan in the first round. And so it tells me that people were ready for that second round. They needed to they needed this capital to keep their business going. We've seen that go down in terms of the volume. We, we had last week 300 uh, applications versus that 6,000 the first week. But there's still uh, a lot of loans that are being made. 80% of the loans nationally are being made to firms with employees of 10 or less. Uh, that's pretty close to what we're doing as well. So I think we're getting it to small business and they need it. Uh, we're also seeing uh, of the industries that are taking it, uh, a lot of diversification, no industry, more than 4% for us. And I was really glad to see that the top industry with our PPP loans is full service restaurants. who have really been under a lot of pressure. All right, Phil, pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Phil Green, the CEO of Frost Bank. Still ahead, traders using social media nearly ruined several hedge funds, but now hedge funds are using those very sites to play defense. We've got the details next. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Hedge funds are playing defense after the GameStop squeeze by scraping social media sites, but that's getting harder to do. Leslie Picker is here with that story. Les, they can't they can't decipher diamond hands. That's not clear. <laughs> I guess it is now. Maybe not a month ago, but yeah. No, to your point, it's becoming increasingly difficult to really understand the lingo, the emojis, the pictures, all these other things that are moving stocks around. A GameStop short squeeze, if you recall, last month led to the near demise of several hedge funds, including Melvin Capital, founder of the firm. Gabe Plotkin told Congress last week that he now has a data science team monitoring monitoring these message boards. Plotkin is not alone. Data vendors who scrape social media sites to see what stocks are loved and hated say they've seen a huge tick up in demand from investors. Now, these fund managers aren't just looking to use this data to source investment opportunities or do due diligence on names. They've done that for years, really decades. Increasingly, though, they're using the data for defense as a way of really protecting their portfolios. It appears to have worked with fewer funds seemingly caught on the wrong side of the trade this week. ThinkNum, which sells scraped data to investors, found that an increase in mentions on social media was indeed a leading indicator for the GameStop pop this week. As co-founder Justin Zen said yesterday right here on The Exchange, Zen says he's seen a huge uptick in outreach from current and prospective clients looking for help defending their portfolios. Now, the one challenge, as you mentioned, Melissa, is that not all content on the Internet is clear cut, especially not these days. For example, that tweet of ice cream is said to be at least partly responsible for the surge in GameStop this week. And then there are the emojis and words like game stonk that have had a similar effect in the past. It would take a very smart algorithm. People are working on it. Uh, to pick up on all of the various nuances, Melissa. In the meantime, Leslie, it does seem that hedge funds 
may even be looking to hire humans. Can you imagine hire right. humans to go through these boards and sort of interpret? Because it, it does require, some of it is not clear cut at all. It's not clear cut and it's changing by the day. I mean, what's fascinating about this is you almost have your own language on these boards that develop over time. But as an algorithm, as a coder, uh, you have to be on top of that on a daily basis and be able to anticipate it. Um, and so that's kind of where the challenge happens is it's not just, oh, let's look at, you know, GameStop to the moon and make sure that we're on top of how many mentions there are of that. They're starting to be a little bit more nuanced. They're starting to be a little bit more of like an inside joke mentality on these on these uh, forums. And so to create an algorithm that really captures that can be a little bit more challenging. It feels like it's something that the Wall Street Bets crowd could outrun, but it's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie, thank you so much. Fascinating stuff. Thank you. Leslie Picker. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.